Hello, my name is I'm the pastor of Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. My wife is the beautiful lady on the back uh, row that's smiling at me, thinking, stop talking about me, honey, because I like to sit back here so nobody will notice me. So uh, if I asked her to stand, she would, but I won't because then she won't afterwards say, why did you make me stand up in front of all those people? So I'm glad that to, to be here. Uh, 44 years ago, my wife, on May 21st, 1977, said she 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 did. Uh, when when the when the guy said, uh, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health, to love, honor, and cherish till death, she said, I do. And so she stuck with me until death. And at times, I over the years, she may have looked at me and thought, Wow. Uh, could that like be hastened somehow? Because <laughs> it's tough to live with a guy like me. But the fact of the matter is we got married. Um, we started dating actually about 48 years ago. Uh, I was a freshman in Bible college. I decided uh, when I was, I decided at 16 years old, I felt called of God at 16 years old. I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. Went to church all my life. Nobody ever told me how I could know for sure I was going to heaven. I wanted to find out how I could know for sure I was going to heaven, but nobody told me. And once I got to a point where I realized that a person could know they're going to heaven, I thought I want to spend the rest of my life doing that. I, I, I felt called to go to Bible college. I went back to a place in Lynchburg, Virginia called uh, Liberty, ba it was called Lynchburg Baptist College back then, and then it became Liberty Baptist College, and now it's Liberty University. Went there. I said to myself, I'm not going to date anybody for four years. I'm not going to look at a girl for four years. Uh, I'm going to be like a monk in a monastery. I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm just going to love Jesus. I'm just going to care about Jesus. I'm going to find out all about the Bible. I want to know the Bible so I can share the Bible with everybody. That's what I'm going to do. I made that commitment in September, and I met Anna in October. And, in, uh, and uh, uh, through a, a series of circumstances that I thought was ordained by God, but I found out was manipulated by my wife. Uh, 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 I, uh, she was watching me, and she found me attractive for some reason. You know, you see a man, you, and, and uh, so she said uh, she, she was interested uh, in, in getting to know me, and she did some things in order to get to know me. Um, we, uh, we had, uh, let me explain. Um, we had uh, our my my um, our campus was not developed yet. We 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 lived on an island uh, on, out in the middle of the James River, uh, which was a camp during the summertime. And when they decide, decided to start Liberty uh, Baptist College, uh, they thought, where are we going to house these students that are going to come? And so they decided to house them. Uh, in their summer camp, which was on an island out in the middle of the James River. Uh, the problem was it was 15 miles away from where the church was. So you had to ride buses from the dorm campus to the church uh, where, where we had the school, uh, the classroom campus. And so you had to do that every morning. You had to get up early and get ready, ride the bus over to that campus. And I thought, uh, I, I, I didn't, I'd never been to college before. I didn't know what to expect. I thought this is what happens. And so we got uh, in our dorm. Uh, we got all situated. There was, there was the, the, there, there was a chapel on, on that island. There was uh, a recreational area. Uh, there was the dining area. Then there was the guys' dorms. And then there was a huge football field. And on the other side of that football field was the girls' dorms. Uh, we believed in separation back then. And so... Uh, and so they, that's where they were. And um, so, uh, again, every morning we'd have, to, we'd have to be at the bus stop about 7.30 in order to catch the bus. I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning because I uh, was working my way through college, and I worked my way through college washing dishes. And so I get, get up and washing dishes. My wife saw me washing dishes. She thought that was a very attractive uh, thing. And so uh, uh, she... Uh, 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 she she saw me, we, we talked as she was going through the line getting food and I was out picking up dishes and we talked from time to time. Uh, my wife is a detail organizer. She organizes things, she plans things and she is meticulous in what she does. So if she's gonna go somewhere, she's gonna be the first person on the bus. And so her plan every morning was to get up, get on the bus before everybody else, that should get up, get ready, get uh, down to the bus and be the first person on the bus. On the other hand, I sort of fly by the seat of my pants. I just sort of do what, I'm, what I do. And, uh, 
And uh, so, and she noticed that. Also, she noticed that I don't like to stand in lines. And so uh, she didn't like to stand in lines either. She was the first one in line every, every day. And so uh, when the bus opened, the door opened, she was up there. Well, what I did not know was this. She got on the bus and she had noticed me. And so she would get on the bus. Now, you, and since our campus was divided, you had to take all the books for the entire day with you on the bus. So she got up on the bus. She would, she would go down and and uh, she would go down about four or five rows in on the bus. She would sit down, she would take her books, put them right next to her, and then she would turn around and look out the window. And then, and she noticed that I was gonna be the last person on the bus. So she knew, she knew my pattern. I, 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 I would run out, I would, I would look out my dorm window when the line got down to, to nothing, I would run out there and I'd get on the bus. I ran out again on the bus, and then, and which, but, but understand, she's sitting on the bus. She's sitting on the bus. She's got books piled next to her, and she's looking out the window. Nobody wants to disturb this cute girl that's looking out the window and saying, would you move your books so I can sit there? So she, she waited. She got, on, uh, she got on the bus, sat down, put her books out, and just looked out the window. And then I, uh, when she saw my head pop up coming on the bus, she would wait till I was just about there, and she'd pick up her books and put them on her lap. And every day I'd walk by and say, nobody wants to sit by this girl. Why? And I thought, this must be of God. This is God making opportunities for me. And, and, and I, I, I sat down. Um, I, I'd sit down, and we would talk, and, and she loved the Lord. We'd talk about all sorts of things. And then we wound up being in our first class together and our last class together. So we rode home together. Man, I, I thought, God's putting us together all the time. And, and this must be of God. But I, told, I, I went home to my roommate, and I said to my roommate, I said, hey, uh, I said, his name was Wayne Brown. I said, Wayne, I said, do you see that girl that I sit with on a bus? He said, yeah, she's beautiful. I said, yeah. But, you know, I said, I told God that I would, I would not date a girl for four years. I made him that commitment just last month and I was just gonna focus on him. And he said, that's good, because if you don't date her, I'm gonna date her. <laughs> then I knew God wanted me to ask her out. And so, uh, so that's, we, we met, we uh, dated for, uh, for a few months and then her mother found out about me and found out there was this guy that grew up in Las Vegas whose dad died when he was 10 years old and uh, he sort of ran around did whatever he wanted to do I had a motorcycle back then and and uh, she heard these stories and she didn't think it was a great idea for me to like uh, get married I was interested in like November of that year uh, and or before after my freshman year or sometime soon uh, I, I, I saw her I wanted her and her mother said no you got to cool your jets boy she didn't say it just like that but uh, she said uh, she said you can date her uh, but you're, you're not going to marry her until you graduate college so three and a half years later uh, we graduated ten days after that we got married uh, a month and a half after that uh, we left for Las Vegas, Nevada, where we uh, planted a church. On September 11th, 1977, we started Liberty Baptist Church. We had, uh, we, uh, by December of that year, well, I found out that my wife was pregnant. And uh, within the next year and a half, we had our first son, Matthew. God's given us five children, Matthew, Joshua, Charity, Faith, and Hope. I should say that's not true. God's given us 10 children because each of my children have married uh, godly Christian spouses. And so I have Matt and Brianna and Josh and Heather, Neil and Charity, John and Faith, and, and, and Josh and Hope. And we have 18 grandchildren with another one on the way. So I guess that officially is 19 uh, grandchildren. And we are just thankful for the fact that God has given them to us. As I start this conference, I just would like to say this, that we do not think that we have been perfect parents. I don't think there's such a thing. I don't think that anybody knows exactly what they should do. And I, I'm, I'm going to share with you Bible principles that I'm going to tell you do work. And as I have committed myself, as we have applied these principles to our life by the grace of God and the mercy of God, we have been able to see our children grow up and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're watching now our grandchildren grow up 
but I believe that is totally and completely by the mercy and grace of God. And I, but I want to share with you uh, some of the things that God has done. I really believe there's an attack on America. I really believe that there's an attack on the American family and the Christian family. I really believe that Satan hates you just like he hates me. I really believe that God, that, that, that God wants to do a work, but I believe Satan is on the attack. We talk about the LBTGQ uh, movement in our, in our world. But it, that's not where it started. We need to understand that back in the 1950s when the Playboy philosophy and Playboy magazine came out and uh, people said it's all right to look but not touch and pornography took over our culture. Uh, that, was, that was not even the beginning. The beginning of the problems in our country is when our country began to walk away from God uh, back at the end of the, the, the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, when books were written like In Search of Historic Jesus that denied the deity of Christ, denied the virgin birth, denied the God of the Bible that was, that was influential in, in establishing this country. When this nation as a whole and the Christians, listen, the people who called themselves Christians in this nation began to walk away from God, that's when the problems began in our nation. And then in, by the 1950s, after 50 years, half a half, half a century, the, the, the promotion of immorality and fornication and adultery and divorce and all that that took place led us to the situation that we're in right now. Do you realize this? That back in 1990, 85% of the population of America claimed to be Christians. 85% of Americans claimed to be Christians. That was back in 1990. Do you not realize by 2020, only 65% of those same people claim to be Christians? And can I tell you this? That of that 65% of people who claim to be Christians, only 40% of those people claim that you have to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is the God and that He is the only way to get to heaven. That means that only that only that means 40% of the 65% that b believe that Jesus Christ is God and that the only way to get to heaven is through Him. Now let me say, let me tell you what that means. That means 27% of Americans believe that Jesus Christ is God. That that equates to 87 million people in this country out of 333 million people in this country claim to be. Christians, born-again Christians. And you say, why do you go through all that? Because listen, listen, the hope of our country, the hope of your future, the hope of my grandchildren, the hope for this country is not in what takes place in Washington, D.C., or the next president of the United States, or the next senator of the United States, or the next congressman, or what takes place in Carson City. It, that is not the hope. The hope of America is a revival amongst that 27%, amongst the 87 million people in this country. It's time that judgment begin at the house of God. It's time that you and I as Christians determine that we need to be what God wants us to be. And it's important that we understand what it is that God wants us to be. It's important that you and I understand what we are supposed to be as Christians. And that means it's important that you and I understand what God's plan is for the family. Because the family is the stability of a culture, and that is why Satan is doing everything he can to tear apart the family. And that's why it's so important that you and I be here tonight. It's so important that you be here tomorrow because what we're going to talk about is, 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 the, is the, the, the strategic structural foundation of a nation. And what we're talking about is what, what will bring stability into your life and bring stability into your family and bring stability into your church and bring stability into the state of Nevada and bring stability into the America. You say, that's all going to happen in this conference? It will, can begin with this conference. Can I tell you this? That God used 12 men to turn the world upside down. 
That 12 men became 120 people in an upper room that prayed for 10 days and God sent revival. I want you to understand that God is still in the revival business and God wants to work in our families. And I just, it's so important. As I travel from place to place, I have come to the realization that people have no idea what the family is supposed to be. People, husbands don't know what their, their responsibility is as a husband. Wives do not realize what their responsibilities are as wives. And we have the whole culture, the whole corrupt American culture, 75% of the people that deny Christ, who are telling us how we, as kingdom people, are supposed to live. Now, I want you to understand that in our culture, if it's true that 87% or 87 million people in this country are Christians, then what we need to do is understand that we live by different principles, by by different priorities, We live in a different way than the rest of the world. And we're not supposed to follow them. We're supposed to be the example of righteousness. In fact, the Bible says this. In 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 17, you know this. The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is, when I got saved... When I get saved, I'm changed. I was spiritually dead before. When I was born, I was born with a body and a soul, but I was spiritually dead, separated from God. But when I got saved, the Spirit of God came to live inside of me. I became spiritually alive, and now I am on this planet. I'm on this planet, and I'm spiritually alive. One of these days, my physical body is going to die, but my soul and spirit are going to be going to be with God in heaven. I am spiritually alive. I'm a new creature in Christ. Why did God make us a new creature? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 tells us why we've been made new. The Bible says there, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. The reason God saved you and didn't immediately take you to heaven. In fact, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be great? God saves you, boom, you're dead in heaven. That would be great. You can pray better there. You can worship better there. You can praise better there. You can do a whole lot of things better in heaven. Why did God leave you in this sinful, wicked body? Because there's other sinful, wicked bodies that need to see Jesus. And you have been saved. You've been put here in Fernley, Nevada to represent God. You've been made a new creature. People say to me all the time, do you believe in alien invasions? Do you believe there's, there's aliens? Do you believe there's extraterrestrials? And I say, yes, we are them. We are the extraterrestrials. We are the aliens. We have, we have the spirit of God that came and made our dead spirit alive. Now we're alive. And we have something to show to the rest of the world. The reason you got saved is so that you could represent God on this planet. You're not here to get rich. You're not here to get famous. You're not here to have fun. You are here to represent Jesus Christ. And most people, even Christians, don't understand that. Most people, there was a survey taken of teenagers back in the 1990s. And the question was asked, what is the purpose of life? And the answer by 80% of those people that were questioned was sensual satisfaction. My whole purpose of life is just to get as the most you can get out of life. You go only go around once in life, so you got to get all the gusto you can. That was the philosophy of the world in 1990 and hasn't changed. That's what a lot of Christians are looking for. What's the next thing that's going to make me happy? What's the next thing that I'm going to get? What's the next place I'm going to go? What's the next possession? What's the next uh, relationship? I'm telling you what, that's not what you're here for. You're here to represent Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants us to understand. But that's not just true of you as an individual. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32, the Bible says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That's talking about marriage. You understand? That's a quote from, from God talking to, to uh Adam in the in the garden. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. And then Paul adds this statement. 
He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Not only are you as an individual supposed to represent Jesus Christ, you need to understand that your marriage is to represent to the world what it is like to have heaven on earth. You say, well, preacher, I'm not doing so well. A lot of people get married and they're, they're like the lady that was in the, in the uh, um, counselor's office. She said, when I got married, I was looking for the ideal. She said, I got an ordeal. She said, now I want a new deal. And a lot of people are living that way. A lot of people are saying, what in the world did I get myself into? Man, I, I, I got involved. How, did, how in the world did this happen? When, when my son... Matthew was about four years old. I was, we were starting the church, and I was, uh, I was the pastor, and the youth pastor, and the children's director, and the song leader, and uh, and so we had, we had, uh, we were just, it was the church was young, and I was doing everything around the church, and so one, what we did, one of the things we did was, since we we're only four and a half hours from Disneyland, once a year we would take all the teenagers to Disneyland, and that was a teen trip, and I would take the teenagers because I got to go for free, and uh, so and I'd take my family with us, so we'd go to Disneyland. It was a ride in Disneyland called Space Mountain, uh, and uh, and we we took uh, we would take the kids. The teenagers would all want to ride Space Mountain. Matthew was only four years old, five years old. He wasn't tall enough to ride Space Mountain. And so he would go up and, and ask if he could ride, and they'd measure him, and they'd say, you're not big enough. And so he, he got to a point where he would ask all the time, when will I be big enough to ride Space Mountain? So we went to our house, and we marked a little marking on the side of the, of the wall and said, when you're that big, you can ride Space Mountain. One day he measured himself, and he was that big. He could ride Space Mountain. He's excited about that. He comes and tells us about it and starts nagging us. I said, okay, you want to ride Space Mountain? Yeah, we're going to go to Disneyland next weekend. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to ride Space Mountain. I want to ride Space Mountain. We took him uh, to Disneyland that day. We, we got inside. As soon as we got through the turnstile in Disneyland, uh, he said, can we ride Space Mountain? I said, Anna, do you want to ride Space Mountain? She had heard it enough. She said, yes, go. And so me and this five-year-old are running down Main Street uh, to, to, to get to Tomorrowland. We make a sharp right turn, enter into Tomorrowland. We go past Star Wars. I don't even think Star Wars was there at the time. We went past there. We got over to where Space Mountain was. He stood up real tall, and he was tall enough to ride Space Mountain. There was nobody else there. We ran up this moving walkway. We ran through all where all the chains were, where hundreds of people were going to be standing in a little while. We got to the inside of Space Mountain. As we got inside, there's this great big hall, and all of a sudden you could hear the noise. <laughs> Matthew stopped. And when he stopped, he just looked around. Then we walked down. We were the first people there, the first people in line, and we were going to get on the front rocket ship. And so we got inside. He sat next to me. He sat, uh, he, I sat here. He sat here. We sat down. And then the people started coming in. He's totally quiet. We put the lap bars down, and he's not saying a thing. He's just looking around at everything. The, the people came in behind, and they're just all piled in and piled in, and now they're making noise. Yeah, oh, okay, this is going to be great. This is going to be nice. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Matthew's not saying a thing. Guy up in the window in front of us puts his finger up like that. Our rocket ship takes off, stops, then makes a sharp right turn and starts going up. What goes up must come down. It's going up, it's going up. We get to the top and boom, we're taking off. We're going by asteroids, we're going by stars. Galaxies are everywhere. Um, everything's going on. People are screaming, everybody's hollering, everybody's happy. Not a sound coming from this side of the cart. We get all the way around, we come to the last stop. The lights are flashing, boom, 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 boom. We stop, boom. When we stop, we, we, it, it slows down, we... We come to the final end. The lap bar goes up. I looked down at Matthew and I said, Matthew, how did you like Space Mountain? He said, I would never take my child on a ride like that. <laughs> I think sometimes people get married and they say, God, I would never have taken a, my child on a ride like that. What in the world am I doing? Where, where in the world? I, who am I married to? I didn't think he was going to be anything like that. And that is why we need to look at what God says about marriage. 
there's a basic problem in marriage. And the first thing is this. We, and here's your first notes here. The basic, we need to understand God's basic plan. The basic plan. What is God's plan for marriage? You see, again, today we have the lesbian, the bisexual, the transgender, the gay, the queer. The, uh, we have people who are living in premarital sex, extramarital sex, adultery. We have common law marriages. What is God's plan? What is God's plan? There are some, if you go into Utah and you go to a center of Utah, you can find people who believe that it's, it's a good plan for one man to be married to multiple wives. What is God's plan? God's plan is given to us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and 24 and 25, where, where the Bible says this, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. Years ago, I was listening to James Dobson. James Dobson was telling the story of being at home one day. He was at home by himself. His uh, wife came to him. His wife's name Shirley. Shirley came to him and said, said, Now, James, I'm going to the store. I'm going to be gone for a couple of hours. Now, you need to understand you're in charge of the children. So make sure nothing happens. And James Dobson said, I'm James Dobson. I mean, I know about children, and 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 he. I'm sure he didn't say that, but but he said, "You go, you go. I'll take care of him." So he got busy in his office, as men will do, and all of a sudden, a half hour went by, and he realized there's no noise. There's no noise. He gets up from his office. He walks out to the den. In the den, there's his little daughter Danielle, and he he says, "So where's your brother?" She's playing with her dolls, and she said, "I don't know." He starts walking through the house. He said, Ryan, 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 where are you, Ryan? Ryan is gone. Now he begins to panic. He's panicked not because he cares that Ryan's gone. He's panicked because he knows what his wife's going to do to him when he comes back and Ryan is not there. And so he doesn't want that. He starts running. He goes out the front yard. He's not anywhere in the front yard. He goes out to the backyard. He heads heads out in the backyard. As he's out in the backyard, he looks out in the alley. Out in the alley, there's an old truck with the tailgate down, and he sees Ryan. He sees Ryan hanging off of the back of the truck. His legs are dangling, and he hears Ryan saying something, but he can't make it out. He gets a little closer and a little closer, and this is what he hears. Somebody help the boy. Somebody please help the boy. I want you to understand that God says, look, when he looked at man, he saw that man was all alone. I think of that story every time I read this verse. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. Somebody needs to help the boy. The man does not do good. So he says, I will make him a help meet for him. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. God's plan is very simple. God's plan is this. And uh, this is the next slide. God's plan is, is for the family is one man serving one woman for one lifetime. That God's plan is one man serving one one woman for one lifetime. That is, in a nutshell, what God instituted when he instituted marriage, when he instituted the family. You say, wait a minute, what is this serving stuff? You'll see that tomorrow morning. The the Bible tells us very simply that the man is to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. And the Bible says this, that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Men need to understand, you need to understand, you're the he- I'm the head of the home. Yes, you are. You are the head servant in the home. You need to understand that. That's Bible, and we'll see that uh, tomorrow. But the, the, the Bible says, look, the basic plan, according to God, he didn't, he didn't wait. Listen, he didn't wait till chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. He didn't wait till Numbers and Deuteronomy. He didn't hide it in Leviticus so nobody would ever read it. He got it there in chapter 2 of Genesis. He said, here's the plan. You take her, you keep her, you serve her for the rest of your life. That's what you do. Wow, and and God never disannulled that. Now, you say, that's the plan, then what's wrong? Here, here's what we want to look at, the the basic problem. What's the basic problem? 
What is the problem in marriage? God tells us, God lets us know why we have problems in marriage. Now you got to grab a hold of this because everything else we're going to say this weekend is off of this truth. The Bible tells us in the last days, perilous times shall come. Perilous times shall come. Now, the fact of the matter is, the Bible says it in this way in 2 Timothy. I think these, uh, this verse is in your notes, but look at this. It says, this know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. What's going to happen? For men, that word men, is, it's, it's a Greek word that means mankind. So it's, you ladies aren't off of the hook here. He's not saying to your husbands, you know, he's talking to all of us. Mankind shall be lovers of their own self, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. By the way, a disobedient to parents is there because you need to understand the first, the first authority figure that's in any of our lives is parental authority. And so disobedience to parents means disobedience to all authority. It's a spirit of rebellion. And, and Samuel tells us that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. So it's satanic to disobey your parents. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affections. That's talking about the whole homosexual LBDTGQ uh, movement. Without natural affections, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that means they lack self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers, I catch this, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Having all of this and then claiming to be speaking for God. Wow. You say, when do the last times begin? Are you really sure we're in the last times? Yeah, these times are here. You say, how do you know that? Because the last times didn't start 50 years ago or 100 years ago. The last time started in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up at Pentecost and he said, Beloved, these are the last times spoken of by the, apostle, or by the prophet Joel. The last times have been with us for the last 2,000 years. We're living in this time. What, what, what are people going to be like in this time? Look at it in, in your notes. Men shall be self-centered and self-serving. Men, mankind, that is, as husbands and wives, self-centered and self-serving. Lovers of their selves. I want what I want out of my, of, of my, of my life. I want what I want. Listen, when I come home at night, what do I want? This is what I want. When I come home at night, I want my wife to come and to the door and say, Honey, you're a home. Welcome. Come in. I want my children to say, Oh, Father, Father, come, sit. You take your recliner. Sit here. The remote belongs to you, Father. You paid for this. It's yours. Sit back. What can we do for you? I want my wife to come dancing. Is there anything that I can do for you? You say, why do you want that? Because I'm selfish and self-centered, just like you. Do you say amen here? Can you say amen here? That's what I want. That's what I want. And that's what you want. Why? Because we are lovers of ourselves. We are covetous. When I see somebody else has got something, I want it. We're covetous. We're boasters. We talk about what... What we've done, in fact, so oftentimes we go up and we hear somebody having a conversation, we want to get in on the conversation, guys talking about, man, I'm, you know, I was out deer hunting and man, I got this deer, it was like a 12 point buck, and, uh, and, and the guy says, I can't wait till you stop talking so I can talk about my 13 point buck. Uh, I, I, got this, I got this Jeep, man, it's nothing like my Jeep, and I'm waiting for you to stop talking so I can brag about what I've done. We're boasters, we're proud. We're proud. We don't like anybody pointing out our problems. Why do we get upset when somebody's pointing out our problems? When our wife says to us, hey, you've got a problem here. I don't want to hear her telling me my problems. Why? I'm proud. We're blasphemers. The word blasphemers means to be an evil speaker. 
means to speak evil of other people. It's so easy to say bad things about other people. Even other Christians. We're unthankful. We don't say thank you. My, my son, Joshua, when he was a little kid, he was restricted in his eating pattern. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow, but there were some certain, certain things he couldn't have. Whenever he got to eat, whatever he ate, whatever his mom fixed, he would always say, oh, thank you. Thank you. He was like the kid with the, with the hollow leg. It didn't matter how much you shoved in. He didn't get any fatter. It just went down in that hollow leg. I mean, he just uh, ate and ate, but he was always thankful. But we, we let, man, we live in a culture, man, we complain. Oh, my third car is broken. Uh, you know, we complain about, about the house isn't what it should be, but you've got a house. Uh, you, it, it, we complain about uh, the job, and yet you've got a job. Wait, man, we're so unthankful. We're unholy. Unholy. We think about ourselves, and we think about what will satisfy me, not what will bring glory to God. We're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And that's the problem we have in our country. That is the problem we have in our world. That, listen, that describes our entire world. And that describes you. Can I point this out? I'm not talking to the person sitting next to you. You say, I feel like this is very personal, Pastor. That's what I intend it to be. I'm talking to you. I wish my husband was here. No, he's not. I'm talking to you. Well, my husband is here. Well, then I'm talking to you, husband, too. I'm talking to you. Uh, what I'm saying, you say, what are you saying? I'm saying that you are a lover of your own self. You're covetous. You're proud. You're a boaster. You're, you're a blasphemer. You're disobedient to your parents. You're unthankful and you're unholy. You say, well, you, <laughs> how can you come into our church and tell us that? Because I find these people everywhere. You're part of the human race. Say amen to that. Listen. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem in marriage. Okay, listen. When two people from this society get married, they bring these attitudes and actions into the marriage relationship. When you got married, you got... When, listen, when I saw Anna, I thought, that is beautiful. I want that. That will make me happy the rest of my life. I, man, I, I'll do whatever I can to convince her that I'm not the person my mother knows I am. I am I'm going to do everything I can to get her to marry me. Why? Because I wanted what she had. I thought she'll make me happy. When she got when she saw me, she said, that is a hunk of man. Man, a hunk, a hunk of burning love. I and she she said I she said I want that man. That man will make me happy. We are we are selfish. We want what we want. Now listen, any marriage in this present age is basically the union of two self-centered people. This is always going to cause problems. It's always going to cause problems. Let me tell you what happened. My wife is selfish and self-centered. I am selfish and self-centered. We got married to each other, and we created five more just like us. Do you understand? So running around my house, there were seven selfish, self-centered sinners always wanting what they want for each other, or wanting for themselves. That's who we are. That's by our, our sinful nature. The Bible tells us this. The Bible says there's, and we'll see this in just a minute, look at all the, the passages that tell us that, but I want you to understand this. That is who we are. Now, some of you are saying to yourself right now, oh, this doesn't apply to me. You understand, in my marriage, I give it all. I'm, I, give, I, I, I give everything. I, I've followed him to the ends of the earth. I've sacrificed everything for her. I'd do anything for her. I'll do. And, and we, you're, you're talking to my spouse, but you're not talking to me. And the reason you feel that way is because, number one, you feel you're filled with pride. You're filled with pride. You ever have an argument with your wife? You ever have an argument with your husband? The Bible says in Proverbs, only by pride cometh contention, but with a well-advised is wisdom. The reason you fight with your spouse is because you are proud, and you're too proud to admit that you're wrong. You say, I don't believe that. With my heart, with my whole heart, I feel I'm right. <laughs> well, the Bible says that your heart is wicked. 
The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You've got a wicked, deceitful heart that tells you, yes, you're right. In fact, you think you're right when you're not. You think you're right when you're not. You sincerely believe you're right when you're not. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Why? Well, well <laughs> the wife will say to me, you, you, you always, it, my, my husband always thinks his wife, he's right. The Bible tells us that you always think you're right. You always think you're right. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Well, yeah, I think I'm right. I wouldn't have said it if I wasn't right. Yeah. Uh, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the heart. God knows that the reason you think you're right is because your heart is wicked and you're filled with pride. Paul said this, that you live in a flesh that is wicked. You live in a flesh that is wicked. In Romans chapter 3, in verses 10 through 18, the Bible says this, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. That's you. There's none that understand. Well, I understand. No, you don't. God says you don't. There's none that seek after God. I sought God. No, he sought you. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. You're unprofitable. You didn't do God any good. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. That includes you. Their throat's an open sepulcher. You think of that, opening a grave and all the maggots and all the stink coming out of that grave. With their, with their tongues they use deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the ways of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You are a wicked, self-centered self-centered sinner and all you're thinking about is you paul said this paul said for i know i know this that in me this is the apostle paul in my flesh dwelleth no good thing for the will is present with me but how to perform that which is good i find not god says you're wicked now do me a favor look at the person right next to you and say you needed this I'm glad you're here. Now, isn't that, isn't that easy to say? Look at the person next to you and say, you are a sinner. Say, go ahead and say it. Okay, now, that's where we feel really good. Now let's confess our sin. All right? And let's say this, I am a sinner. Let's say it all together out loud. I am a sinner. Ooh, one more time. That's pretty good. I am a sinner. You know the problem in your marriage? It's not your spouse. It's you. It really changed my life when I came to the realization that the problem in my marriage was me. It's not my sinful kids who act like me. It's me. It's not my self-centered wife. It's me. See, the problem in your marriage is you. So I want you to say this with me. The problem in my marriage is me. Let's say that. The problem in my marriage is me. You're, some of you aren't very enthusiastic about this. But let's try it one more time. The problem in my marriage is me. And when I come to the realization that the problem in my marriage is me, then God can fix the problem. And God can make me what God wants me to be. Men in our society have marital problems and they fight with their wives because it's hard for two people who sin to live together. Is that profound? That's why we have fights. The Bible says this in James chapter five, 4 and verses 1 and 2. It says, from whence comes war and fighting among you? Why do you fight with your wife? Let's just put it right in their marriage. Why do you fight with your wife? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? I need some rest. I need some attention. 
She's not with me when I need her to be with me. He doesn't listen to me. We're not in love like we used to be. That means he doesn't listen. He doesn't make me feel the way I used to feel. It's all about us. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, but you have not because you're asking the wrong person. You're not going to Jesus. You have not because you've asked not. Wow. So we've seen God's basic plan. We've seen the basic problem. What's the basic solution? Now look, the basic solution is the destruction of the sin problem that the, the, the solution to the destruction the sin problem brings to the marriage is the elimination of sin. Isn't that simple? So if I just get rid of my selfish, self-centered flesh, then, uh, then everything will be fine. The problem is that only takes place at death, you see? And we're not going to—we're not one of those cults that have mass suicide, so we can't do it. That—that—that's not going to—that's not going to cause, or that's not going to happen. So, look at the next statement. This cannot be accomplished in totality until our bodies are changed at the rapture. Look, when you got saved, you had a body and a soul, but your spirit was dead. You got saved. Your spirit's alive. You have a perfect spirit. Your soul is redeemed, but your body still wants to sin. So, so it's not going to change until the rapture. At the rapture, you get a new body. It, cannot, it can, however, be controlled by a daily surrender of ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, what does that mean? In Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 18, the Bible says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The Bible tells us this that we need to daily surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God and allow Him to control us. Why? Because if not, my flesh is going to control me. And when my wife doesn't treat me right, or when your husband doesn't treat you right, or when your children aren't behaving, or whenever your flesh is going to say, you need to get revenge, you need to do everything, the, the flesh will control you. Unless you say, God... I want you to know I recognize that you are the master and I am the servant. You are, you are the one that's in control and I just want to do whatever you want me to do. My purpose in life is to represent God and the way I do that is by being a servant to those that are around me. Man, if we could grab a hold of that and I used to, I can't be a servant. Why? Because I'm selfish and I want what I want. And so every day, I have to do this. I have to get down on my knees every day, and I have to say to Jesus, Jesus, I recognize that all I deserve is hell. I recognize that you deserve glory and honor and praise. And I want to be your servant, and I pray that you'll control me, that I might represent you in everything that I do and say. That's humbling yourself before God. Isn't it interesting that that great revival verse, verse says this? If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways. You know what's going to happen? When you get down before God and you say, God, I want you to control me, he's going to say, first of all, to you, in the Spirit, He's going to say to you, there's some sins you need to confess. Every day I say to the Lord, God, I'm selfish and self-centered, and I know that. I confess that to you. I confess that I've got a, a competitive spirit. I confess that I want what I want for myself. I confess that it's real easy for me to talk bad about people and to people. God will put in your mind things that you need to confess to Him. See, being filled with the Spirit is not speaking in tongues or doing flip-flops in the aisles or having some weird experience, having goosebumps go up all over my body. That's not being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is you humbling yourself before God and saying, God, I can't be the kind of husband. I can't be the kind of father. I can't be the kind of friend. I can't be the kind of servant you want me to be. I need you to control me. 
God, show me what I've done wrong. And boom, the Spirit of God will say this and this and this. You say, God, I confess all those things as sin. I don't want to justify any of them. When you do that, the Spirit of God, will. then, then you just ask the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God will do through you what you could never do on your own. The Spirit of God will do through you what you could never do on your own. Philippians 4.13 says, I, Paul said, I can do all things. People say all the time, oh, you can do it, you can do it, just overcome it, just have the positive spirit. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, I can endure anything through Christ. Amen. I have to be surrendered to Him daily. And then, and then once you surrender to Him, daily pray for mercy and grace to do what God wants you to do, to be what God wants you to be. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look, you are to represent Christ with your life. That's why you're here. Your, your family's to represent Christ. But Satan has come along saying, the family's this and the family's that and the husband is this and the husband and the wife is that and children do. And there's all sorts of mixed things coming out. You need to determine. I want to be a representative of Christ to my wife and to my children, to my, to my husband and my children. I want to be a representative of Christ. I want our marriage to represent Christ in the culture. And I can't do that. By myself. I have to admit that I'm a sinner. The problem in the marriage is me. You say, what if I straighten up and my spouse doesn't? You just leave that to God. God can take care of your spouse if you're taking care of you. You say, God, help me to be the, the wife. Help me to be the husband that you want me to be. I, I recognize my sinfulness and my problem. God, make me your servant. When you start living to be the servant God wants you to be. And then daily you surrender and say, Lord, help me to serve my wife, my children, my husband, my, my neighbors. Help me to serve. And you start living to serve. There will be a contentment in your life, but you can't do that by yourself. You've got to ask Him to control you. You've got to admit that you're a sinner. Just like in getting saved, isn't it? You've got to admit that you're a sinner. You've got to say to Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. Please give me eternal life. In order to be spirit-filled, you've got to say, I recognize the problems in my life are me. I confess that to you. Fill me that I might be the husband or the wife, the mother, the father, the children that you want me to be. And when we surrender to Him, God can use it. Let's say this one more time. The problem in my marriage is me. The problem in my marriage is me. If you'll mean that and you'll tell that to God, God will change things. Father, help us to be the kind of husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and families that you want us to be. Help us to take your truth and apply it to our lives for your glory. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, would you ask God to use what has